I, I like to think of these as zero, uh, zero episodes. Yeah. Because uh, that's basically what it is. And we're going to have some sort of, uh, you know, numbering restart, uh, just like our, our friends at Marvel and DC like to do all the time. Just, oh, just a good old fashioned reboot. Just reboot it and we'll start over in uh, just a couple of weeks here. Those are always great for comic book sales. We'll see what it does to podcasting. Now, before we get into the meat of this episode, Will, what episode is this? Welcome into Ted Lasbro's episode five, which will probably get edited into a different type of numbered episode when we start our feed and go back to season one and need to talk about how we want to be labeling episodes. But this is the fifth time that Will and I have convened to talk about an episode of Ted Lasso. I am always as Jeff. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing super fantastic as always, Jeffrey. We are at season two, episode 11, Midnight Train to Royston, the penultimate, I like saying that, penultimate episode. I used that in my notes as well. Season two, we have a a billionaire football enthusiast from Ghana makes Sam an unbelievable offer, and Ted plans, uh, Ted plans something special for Dr. Sharon's last day with the team. So coming out of last week, um, you know, kind of the big points out of last week, Ted had a big breakthrough with uh, Dr. Sharon. Uh, Rebecca paused things with Sam so she can figure herself out. And uh, Jamie, Jamie told Keely he still loves her. And then Roy told Keely he loves her. And we last see uh, Nate having his ear whispered in by Rupert. Like those are the big pieces of knowledge to kind of come into this episode where largely we follow Ted and Sharon coping with her departure from the team, Sam being wined and dined by said uh, charming billionaire, and Roy and Keeley continuing to explore what their relationship means and navigate some more hurdles. Um, but before we get into all of that, Jeff, do we have any? We do. We Ooh. do. And what is exciting is we have an email from the wonderful Brian Garside. And what I anticipate Hi, is this is the final episode or final email that we will be getting in at the address Jeff at the comicsplace.com for our Ted Lasbro's podcast because Will Elmer created a wonderfully named email address that people can be sending emails to. Will, what is the name of that email address? What can people send Ted- us emails at? Ted Lasbros at gmail.com. It's no hyphens. Simple. No hyphens. All one word. Doesn't matter about capitalizations. Ted Lasbros at gmail.com. Drop us an email. You can capitalize it if you want. It makes me feel good if you do. For sure. For sure. Even all the letters, actually. That makes me feel really important. Your entire email in capital letters. Oh, actually, yeah. Even wouldn't better. mind. We're going to start getting those now that we've made that <laughs> offhanded comment. Um, Brian Garside writes in, hey, Last Bros, great show as always. I'm loving the deep dives and how you guys are pulling at all the threads and seeing where they lead to. The big question I have for you this week is, what do you think about the Roy Kent is a CGI actor theory? I mean, on one hand, it seems kind of impossible. We also live in a world where birds are not real. So who even knows? Keep on keeping on and spread the truth. Birds aren't real. This is a theory that 
I had seen a title of, and then you like the next day sent me a link to an article about it. What do you, where do you fall? Will? where do you fall? And then we've seen him do an a, a award speech acceptance, but like, what's that mean? It was also on television. Uh, if you haven't seen, um, if you haven't seen the, the response from um, Brett Goldstein to this question, I think you should absolutely look it up. I think he's got just a quick 30 second or 20 second video response to it. That's fantastic that I won't spoil. I'll leave that for you guys to look up if you haven't seen it. But um, I think there's a chance it might be true. And he's just got <laughs> his, his hair, his beard. Everything is is so perfect. And if you, you know, like you've got a PS5, I've got an Xbox Series X. But some of the games on like, um, you know, some of the sports games that are coming out now, the players look so so realistic in the games now when you compare them to kind of how perfect and how perfectly psychotic his eyebrows look and everything like i feel like that can only be a cgi creation am i wrong no i mean you're not wrong there's always room for there's always room in this world for deep fakes and whatnot my question has to come down to is it an entirely cgi generated person or do you think there is a body double and then they put his face this sort of manufactured head on the person a very hairy chested person. I feel, I mean, if you watch the way Roy moves, walks, the way he turns, his, his movements are too robotic. Even when he hangs the piece of art in this week's episode and pulls the string down to put it on there. I mean, that's just movie magic at work. Right? You're right. Movie magic. I love movie magic. Okay. So it sounds like we both are reserving some space to believe that maybe he is CGI. You seem more convinced than I am. But I'm going to wait to believe he's real until we meet him in person, which I think will probably be next season. We'll be getting him on the, the last bros for interviews and hangout sessions. Yeah, I just, I'll, I'll go one step further because uh, oh, the conspiracy also, hole. he's also a writer on the show. So my suspicion is, is he started out as an like an AI algorithm to help them write these episodes. And then he was so good at that, that they turned around and cast him in the show. This is a separate show in and of itself. Like there's a television show to be made about an AI gaining sentience and then, you know, gaining an acting position on a television show. Yeah, All I right. We, so, so, uh, thank you, Brian. I didn't get, thank you, Brian. We didn't get another email, but, uh, you know, we did get some lovely messages from friend really of the show, did. Andrew Carlson. Um, he told me he has to stop listening to the podcast in public because our last discussion was too heavy for him. Um, to be listening to it, listening to it while he was walking around. So it was very nice uh, compliments. And he also he sent me an audio clip um, from one of your from your other podcast of um, our friend Django saying he needed to write in about the episode, but he didn't. And but just bringing bringing some extra attention to your predictions, kind of not coming true on the show. You're feeling like. You know, somebody's going to die or something. Heavy's coming and and kind of getting that wrong. And he felt like he needed to write in. So I don't believe he's done that yet, but I want to follow up on that thread just a little bit. And maybe yeah. segue into the conversation about the show. Um, how do you feel about being wrong about so much? And why do you feel like something horrible is the natural step for what's to come? Maybe even still in one final episode. Why do you feel like uh somebody had somebody was going to die or yeah. something that heavy well i um take a lot of fiction in and Django did bring this up and i can't remember if it was on a podcast or where um but he also was sort of like you know 
brought it up as if like I was disappointed or something. And, and, and really that's not at all what it is. I, from taking in a lot of fiction and also just liking the structure of stories, I'm always naturally trying to predict um, what's going to happen, but also kind of think about the writers in the room um, furthering the complexity of the conversations they've presented. I'm watching a show called Midnight Mass right now with I'm Sam. I really, really like it. But, uh, you know, there's some parts that are more easily predicted than others. And really what I could say is my biggest criticism of art is that it follows the predictions that I've created for it. Like that's when I lose the most interest in something. So when I bring up that uh, Ted Lasso can consistently defies my predictions, it's like the highest praise I could have for it because like that's what consistently it's always kind of um, rooted in a familiarity with the formulaic formulaic nature of television shows to this point. And having kind of grown up in front of a television, a lot of, you know, I would say the, the middle portion of the normal distribution bell curve all kind of falls into these consistent tropes. And what I like so much about this show is that it will give me a seed of what I think might happen. And then it will defy that. Uh, and that's gone back to like season one. So it's, it's more than anything. It's like my favorite part of the show is that it does that. I think that like my predisposition for thinking bad things will happen is that I do think consistently television shows take the easy way out to construct drama and construct sort of, uh, you know, like a, a Friends episode or any other television show. I watched that whole series recently, so it always comes to mind. But when you've got like 22 episodes to fill, there's a lot more room for filler. So they'll oftentimes, instead of, you know, drawing a, a line between two points, they'll do like a little whoop-de-doo, which is just sort of like the idea of like a, a tangential thing that can go on a journey, but bring you right back to where you were to then continue kind of in like comic books as well, sequential storytelling. Um, that's a consistent thing. And I love that this doesn't do that. So a lot of my predictions for this show, um, and like, I wasn't like someone's gonna die. It was like, I'm worried someone is gonna die because they did belabor this moment between like coach and coach of just like, this doesn't fit how things have generally gone like the, the mood of things so it felt like there was a foreshadowing thing and, and i think that like within predictions it's oftentimes easy to assume things are going to do what things before it have done but this show what i love so much about it is that it consistently defies my expectations um and the kind of format for what a 10 episode comedy show does you you answered the question kind of almost exactly the way I, I hoped you would. This is maybe just a, a question that I've always thought about, and I've thought about it a lot since you've talked about that. I think about it when I watch other shows, and maybe it is, like you said, it's just kind of always following a trope. But I, I'm, I'm just always really curious about the idea of, like, when we're watching a show, why we we are, are naturally assumed to, to put on an idea that the character is going to or has to die. Like that's the natural closure for a character when you're watching. So, you know, I've watched a lot of crime drama TV shows uh, where something like The Shield or Sons of Anarchy or something like that, when a new character is introduced on a show, you're kind of like, oh, that guy's the only way out. <laughs> this person has to die by the end. If you're watching Game of Thrones, like, oh yeah, that person's going to die. Like there's just always this idea. And I always wonder, is that a trope that is followed or is that also something that we just that's the only way we can process like a character moving on from a TV show is like that they have to die. Uh, I think I it's think, an interesting. I think it's uh, an idea. interesting 
on that note, yeah, being invested in, I want to talk about Ted and Dr. Sharon first. Me too. Awesome. So I guess I have a lot of thoughts, but just to you know recap a little bit of what's in the episode, I have a lot of questions for you as well. You know, we find the episode Sharon's last day is coming. Ted is preparing. He's going around, you know, collecting an envelope full of cash as a gift for her and getting the team to practice singing Bye 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 by NSYNC. Perfectly um, NSYNC. Which, is, which was wonderful. And then finds out, you know, when he goes to, to, goes to talk to her in her office, Higgins is finally setting back up in his office and find out that she's left and Ted chases her down and is really angry with her for for leaving and she's written this letter. Um, I really, I really wanted to kind of cut to the chase on this because it's been, it's been um, hounding me since watching the episode, Jeff, if your therapist left you a letter and didn't say goodbye, like how, how would, I mean, is that, is that okay? How would you feel about that? Like, is that uh, yeah the way it's things an, would work? It's an interesting question because I do think there is a slightly unique aspect to their therapeutic relationship that I can't fully identify with, which is it exists as a byproduct of the job that he works at. So like the company hired this person and people are seeing that person within the company, um, which is a little bit different than I think independently seeking out a therapist and having the weight of that relationship be entirely on those two people. So while I don't think it's appropriate to do that, I can, I can rationalize it a little bit through things like that. Um, but like to my own point, uh, right before the pandemic, my therapist was going to be moving out of town and he was going to be quitting his practice. And, uh, you know, he's an older gentleman. It made a lot of sense time-wise that that would be a thing that was happening. I still see him because the pandemic allowed him to go to like a zoom based therapy model. And that allowed him to keep many clients on, which is great. But, um, that's a guy that I've hugged. We hug. Um, and because the pandemic happened so suddenly I didn't get to like say goodbye to him in person. And like on our second or third session in the pandemic, it was kind of maybe going to be our last the entire time I was just like worried about like, do I need to say goodbye during this? And I was like, well, Victor, is this our last session? And he was like, Oh no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that to you. We would, we would prepare for that and move towards it. I'm going to keep doing stuff. Um, but even to that, this is a guy I've seen for 10 years and I haven't gotten to give him a hug in like two years, especially like when I thought he was going to be leaving or closing his practice. And at this point, because he's in a very different state of the country now, when we do inevitably finish our session, I won't be able to give him a hug. So one thing I'm going to do is road trip to give that guy a hug regardless. Cause I will not end our sessions without having gotten to do that. Like that's incredibly important to me. So is there, fi- uh, yeah. is there fine, is there final, like, is there finality to your therapy sessions or is it, you know, cause one of the things I felt like is that it was too soon for Ted to be, you know, finish with his therapy with Dr. Sharon and maybe he needs to continue it on with somebody else or, you know, maybe we'll find out some more information about that for things to come. But it felt felt like it's too soon. Now, time clearly has passed. So, um, but I don't know how much time has passed since the last episode. And I always kind of was under the idea that therapy is a, is an ongoing thing, right? That you're not just going to be like, I don't know when you're going to drive across the country to get your hug, 
if it's going to be like an annual thing or if you have a certain, you know, when he retires, that's when it's done and you find another therapist. But uh, I'm curious if you can expand on that a little bit more. I'm just absolutely. Um, you know, my I have a slightly unusual relationship with my therapist, which is I've been seeing him for about 10 years, but about halfway through that, um, like I started going because of the issues that I was having with my father that I brought up last time. Um, but that was never solely the focus of therapy. I think a lot of people can go to therapy and be seeking, identifying and solving a specific issue. But for me, it really was sort of like a mental upkeep thing. Like you're talking about, it's not a thing that necessarily has a definitive ending to it. Um, like five years into it, we sort of had a conversation of just like, well, what is this? Like, are you, is there a, a answer that you're seeking? And we kind of came to the conclusion that what we had was sort of a more of a mentor relationship. Um, like somebody that I can talk to and kind of clear my head and get a lot of internalized thoughts out and externalize them and therefore kind of remove some of the power from them. But I do think that there are like, I, when I started seeing him like two and a half years into seeing him, he was like, you seem to be firing on all cylinders. Like I'm always going to be here if you want to have a session, but I think unless you feel different, you're good to go. And for, there was actually about a year there that I wasn't seeing him. And then some stuff came up and some bumps in the road and I started to see, start seeing him again. Um, and it's been, you know, wonderful since then. So it kind of depends, I think on the person, the therapist and the type of thing that you're working on within therapy, which is a conversation that I think is ongoing. I do think the way that Dr. Sharon ended it is, was maybe a little bit inappropriate from a therapeutic perspective. I think that that's a conversation that should have happened between the both of them of, do you want to keep going? Can I help you find a different therapist um, that would work for you because I'm going to be leaving um, all of that? You know, it's, it's a little bit, I don't know, quote unquote problematic, but what I think that it did well within this episode is continue this conversation that both of them had of this sort of meeting in the middle type of dynamic that I think is so important with all people in the world. And the way that this whole thing started is that there wasn't a sort of distinct meeting in the middle. Dr. Sharon ended it and for her own comfort uh, she didn't do the goodbye without necessarily fully thinking about Ted's perspective. But then Ted was really pissed off and he was like, you got to tell me goodbye. And she's like, well, I wrote it in a letter. And he's like, I don't want to read a letter. I want you to tell it to me. And both of those instances are people, I think, overly demanding that the other person kind of play by what the rules that they wanted to play by. And ultimately, I think what happened was really wonderful but i did i did stand out to me that like while grumpy ted is very very cute um <laughs> the, the, the between friends like it's important to i think kind of always be meeting in the middle which is a big uh metaphor that this show has always kind of had for me but particularly this season i like your point about them both wanting the other person to you know say goodbye the way that they expect them to and they ended up having to meet in the middle um, but kind of came short on each other's expectations right up front. And when Ted was reading the letter, um, you misspelled favorite. I love that um, line. You know, you watch his his face and man, what a good actor. Because you could just, yeah. to read his face while he's reading that letter was, you know, was a, it told an emotional story in itself, just watching that. Uh, so the letter obviously contained a lot of, um, um, you know, heartfelt information that was being conveyed that if he, Ted had read it, um, he wouldn't have been quite as angry, but I still, I don't know. I'm still kind of stuck on just like, 
she's a therapist and they're all about having an open line of communication right. she would just leave a letter and uh doesn't and seem super appropriate but it does it begged a question for me that i wanted to ask you so within that kind of paradigm of looking at this sort of like always be respectful to the other person and meet in the middle um i think that's an unrealistic expectation for everyone to have all the time so it begged the question to me between friends what level of pressure is appropriate like when is it not appropriate i think it was a little inappropriate for her to just dip and i think it was okay for ted to have talked to her about hey that wasn't cool with me but he also did kind of demand that she do it in person rather than uh the letter and just like you know encouragement between friends of just sort of like hey do you want to come out and hang out tonight and friends like no i don't really want to and it's like no you should like when is, yeah, is there a line of when that's appropriate or should we all just be respectful of like, no, that person's making their decision. I sent the invitation out if they don't want to come. But like on some level, friends do sort of know what's better for them. Kind of like I've certainly been pulled out of my shell many times and I'm grateful for it. Um, so that kind of just drew an interesting question in my mind of like, what sort of pressure is is appropriate between people? Yeah, I mean, I guess it probably depends on 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 the relationship a bit. I we we saw in Beard After Hours, right? Jane was const- was trying to get Beard to come and and join her for the night out because she knew what he needed, and he, you know, didn't didn't do that. So there's definitely times where people need somebody who knows them and loves them to um, to pull them out and 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 do something. But you know, that's a, that's a good question. I think about a lot, you know. Uh, I'm a, you know, I'm a 30 something year old man with, with children, Sarah and I, you know, we've been married for well over a decade and we often try to, um, you know, figure out how do we, how do we form friendships with other adults, whether they have children or whether they don't. And in the last year I've made a lot, you know, we've made a lot of new friends and trying to figure out what those boundaries are, is just a whole nother level too of like, okay, these people have kids or these people don't have kids. We have kids. So what are the expectations on trying to figure out like, hey, do you guys want to get together and do something? Not to mention throw it in the middle of a pandemic where, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't know what other people's comfort levels are of going to a restaurant or getting a drink or coming over to your house and coming inside your house. So I think about this a lot. I don't feel like I have a good answer, but I just try to, I try to gauge, you know, what the, what the response is. And I was like, hey, you guys, uh, you know, want to hang out and do this thing and and see, or when a friend is, is down and out and then offer to, Hey, let's go get lunch. Or even if I'm feeling down and out and putting myself out there to say, Hey, do you want to go grab lunch or grab a drink? And then how much do you, how much do you push from there? I think it's just, I think you've got to put it out there. You've got to push a little bit and then know that, all right, it's just, it's just not there right now, or it doesn't make sense. It doesn't mean anything personal against you there's just everyone always has a million things going on just and like anxiety is a, a messy messy thing that's the particular thing it's just sort of like i know you're anxious but we should hang out but also i'll respect your anxiety but also it wouldn't be that bad but also i get like it's yeah but also just, uh, i'm gonna feel anxious while i yeah. wait for you to yeah. decide if you want to <laughs> hang out with me sure. yeah yes yeah the i i liked the the ted sharon stuff i thought it was really pretty beautiful and i really liked the the way that ted got what he needed out of it and made sure that she didn't have to do the thing that she didn't want to experience you know and uh will i'm gonna go out on a limb here i assume you're a person who likes the movie goodwill hunting 
I haven't seen it in years, but I think it's a pretty good movie. I think it's one of my all-time faves. Not to just project that we have the exact same interests on things, but the the her doing the line of like "son of a bitch stole my line" is maybe one of my favorite Goodwill Hunting shoutouts <laughs> I've seen. And yeah, I just love love that movie, and also kind of love the conversation that therapy has in that. I think it's really well well represented in that movie. Okay, so I wanted to I, I had an idea I typed in my notes um, of of just some segments of the show that I kind of wanted to introduce. One of them is like you know. I don't know what I want to call it, like Jeff's musical heartstrings or something like that, because you know so much more about what's happening in music um, than I ever do in episodes. So, uh, but I wanted to be able to, you know, point out any, you know, like maybe like a references roundup or anything else yeah, of, yeah. that yeah. may be within the episode. So I completely missed the the Goodwill Hunting reference just because it's been, I don't know, it's been a long time. Um, I've seen Goodwill Hunting too, hunting season way more than I've seen. Um, Goodwill. Is that a thing? Is that a joke? <laughs> uh, it's from Jay and Silent Bob. Oh, it yeah. is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. That's. Uh, yeah. I, well, I would recommend a, a rewatch of Goodwill Hunting, but the movie roundup thing is a great idea that it made me want to have a sort of a warm up conversation with you at one point um, today. And we should have done that. Um, so there's a couple of things that I caught specifically from this. Well, we have. Um, when the billion, when, uh, the billionaire, uh, Edwin Akufo was taking, uh, Sam around and they're in the museum and he says, they're all hired actors. And then Sam says, Oh, I thought I recognized them from, I may destroy you. Now I went on IMDb and was trying to see like, are those real actors from, I may destroy you. And then I didn't find any record of those, of those, uh, people that we saw as far as I could tell. What Mm -hmm. I did find is that Dr. Sharon is in fact in I May Destroy You as one oh. of the actors in that show. Weird. So that's a nice, wonderful little uh, meta referential humor. Yeah. And then the other, like maybe much bigger one that may or may not be more glaringly obvious is The Godfather. That's and what I want to talk to you about. How much that played into this episode and just the, into Nate as a character in general. Yeah. Uh, they made the Godfather, you know, I'll make you an offer I can't refuse joke earlier in the episode, just thinking it's a throwaway joke. And then to bring it back, kind of the reveal, the big reveal at the end that Nate is Fredo. I exactly. mean, like a hundred percent. And you really can look back at it. We talked about in uh, last week's episode when uh, Ted was having his panic attack, he was looking and tying his tie. There was a picture of his son, and a picture of Nate and like Nate has really represented like a surrogate type of son mm-hmm. um, to Ted and replacing that. So there's, there's some elements of the Godfather kind of scrambled around and mixed up that make up Nate's character and make up Ted's son. In the end, like Nate really suffers from a lot of insecurity and wants his father to love him and everything else. And now that's kind of manifested in, you know, previous episode with that I didn't particularly like where we saw Nate kind of starting to lash out at weaker characters than him or seemingly weaker characters um, to now everything that we saw Nate go through in this episode, all the way up to stabbing Ted in the back and having his total Fredo moment. And at the same time, you know, Ted has put all this energy into raising kind of quote unquote, raising Nate and helping him become a man while kind of neglecting his own son and now is stabbing him in the back 
with we get that exit um, of, of karma police playing um, so perfectly to go along with it. So we got to talk about that because I that was there was, you know, a couple things that I really, uh, really just kind of open ended thought about what their maybe the conversation was. So karma police and the usage of that. I don't know. I'm not a giant Radiohead fan. I love that song, um, but I'm not somebody who's like analyzed a lot of lyrics and stuff, but um, I love Karma Police. And I, I always read into the usage of what songs they play in what scenes. And Karma Police starts playing around the time that Trent Cram from The Independent, which the, the, beauty, independent. the beauty of that scene, that Trent texted him, um, in that beautiful way says this is going to be in the early print edition tomorrow the, the you know nate or an anonymous source said ted had a panic attack and it wasn't food poisoning um i love the way that he said but you know i have to do that as a reporter but as your friend or as someone who respects you the anonymous source was nate which is probably overstepping your bounds as a, a news person but i love the inclusion of it because i really love trent crim's uh journey with ted has been amazing but Karma Police starts playing around then. I had to look up the lyrics of Karma Police because I was really curious about what... what Sarah's Sarah's a big Radiohead fan. So that's the only reason I even knew the name of the song. I just, I'm not good with music. Um, I know some Tool songs. Um, Can I, can we, can I read some of these lyrics? Yes, please do. So the, not a ton in the song, which says karma police arrest this man. He talks in maths. He buzzes like a fridge. He's like a detuned radio karma police arrest this girl. Her Hitler hairdo is making me feel, feel ill. And we've crashed her party. And then it says, this is what you'll get when you mess with us. And then the part of the lyrics they include in the episode karma police. I've given all I can. It's not enough. I've given all I can, but we're still on the payroll. And then it repeats, this is what you'll get when you mess with us. And then the refrain and chorus of this song is, for a minute there, I lost myself. I lost myself. For a minute there, I lost myself. And I was trying to think about that song and the lyrics and who they were pertaining to. And what is that song about? And um, I thought it was really interesting because that song seems to take a dual narrative approach of somebody enlisting the karma police to take care of these people who are making them uncomfortable. Like, I I don't like this guy, take care of him. I don't like this girl, take care of her. And then it goes into a very large shift within the song and it's for a minute there, I lost myself. Um, So me, it's kind of a conversation about letting things go to our head or allowing other people to upset us and then want to have revenge on them or be vindictive. Um, but then realizing that and being like, whoa, I lost myself there. And maybe I don't, that's, you know, that level of vindictive uh, behavior isn't something that I am a part of. So I was kind of processing it as like Ted being like, man, is he pissed off at Ned, but er, then he's going to or Nate rather. Um, and then he's going to realize the other side, but I actually, in over plowing the metaphor started to think that maybe the song is more about Nate and the usage of that is because he really has sort of lost himself. And I I think that even in like Radiohead, you're getting famous, like that guy doesn't fit what I want in our crowd, kick him out. But then realizing like, Oh, things are going to my head. um, Seemed like kind of a larger conversation about Nate that Ted was in the middle of. I'm just curious where you're at with all of that. Again, those were lyrics I had to look up because 
I love the song, but I didn't know it, but I, I had to think there was a lot there. I, I took the kind of dual narrative as well from the standpoint, even just the title of the song, Karma Police, was kind of enough once Sarah said it. I was like, okay, this this probably goes both ways. This probably covers like Trent Krim revealing the source of Nate. Like Nate is going to get what's coming to him for it in some way, shape or form um, for some of his action and behaviors. I think that maybe this is going to be a, a big play out of season three in general, uh, but also kind of a bit of what Ted gets. Like I, like I said before, going back to the idea that Ted is been more focused on raising surrogate children than raising his own child and mm-hmm. not out of some sort of, you know, it's not like Ted is doing it because he doesn't love his son. It's, it's, you know, the decision that his job, the path that his job has taken him on and the distance that he put between him and his ex-wife to try to see if some space, uh, you know, could resolve things. So a little bit is just, this is kind of coming back on Ted a little bit for, putting so much time and energy into, into raising other surrogate children and not his own. Uh, I think that's a theme of maybe previous episodes or a theme a bit of, of the season. Uh, I have a, like a prediction. So one of the moments that uh, a moment that preceded this was when Rebecca came into the office to talk to Ted, that was a reflection of season one and dropped a truth bomb. And then he says, you know, I'll see you next year for the second to last episode um, of season three. I, my prediction for that is that we are going to kind of end on the idea of, I guess, Rebecca is going to come in and the truth bomb she's going to drop on Ted is that he needs to go home. Like he needs to go home and raise his son, Mm -hmm. regardless of what that might be. I, I think she'll fire him. I think she'll come in and say, you're fired, you need to go home in a loving way, not in a like you failed at your job, but your work here is done. You're fired, go home to your family. That's what really matters. That's kind of my prediction. So I think that that's reaching a bit of a head right now in season two with just that idea, um, you know, playing with the karma police. And this is this is what he gets and he's got to pay the price for it. I also wrote in my notes, I can't wait for next year's penultimate episode truth bomb for, from Rebecca. So I, yeah, I love the way that they brought that up. And that was also the thought I had is that she's going to lovingly, you know, fire him and, or let him go. Um, let the people that you love go, but we have to talk a bit more about Nate, which seemed like the largest bit of this episode or the most, I don't know, impactful thing for me to be mining Um, And it's just obviously something I think a lot about in my life. And I've been in sort of situations in Nate's shoes. And I feel like I've been in situations with Ted's shoes with, with a Nate type. Um, And just kind of the dangers of growing up or uh, elevating oneself in someone else's shadow. I consider it the Nightwing syndrome is how I always think of it. Like uh, Dick Grayson being Robin and being raised in Batman's shadow, but being a fundamentally different person, but respecting them, but growing up and at some point, you have to step out of that shadow and start a life of your own, or at least be fully responsible uh, for your actions and whether they're the praise that comes from them or the responsibility for the failure that goes with them, I think is a necessary component in maturing and identity development. And I always love the way that Batman comics brought that up. And so I always think of it as the Nightwing syndrome, but he's also, I think that one of the dangers that that can have is it can really introduce 
if you're not really objective, it can allow you to start forming narratives that are not real. And uh, I really like the way they introduced that with Ned when he says something to the effect of like, well, Ted's going to just take more credit for plays that I've designed. And I had to write down, like, has Ted taken credit for anything? I feel like he's been pretty good about like shining the light on those that are responsible for their actions. But I could see Nate in his frustration and feeling stifled by his leadership, starting to tell himself these narratives. And so even when Ted was like, you know, he says something charming about like, well, an affirmative thing. And instead of trying to figure out what Ted says, he's just like, what does that mean? And uh, Beard says like, oh, it means this, um, which is yeah, anyway, instances of uh, fallacy narratives going on. Is, is that, is that a yes? Yeah, yeah yes. exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. He just didn't care to figure it out. He just like, I'm over this Ted's being Ted. I want a yes or no. Yeah. I don't think that Ted has really gone out of his way to take credit, but we don't know how the media mm-hmm. continues to cover it. Uh, I think, more than anything, it's the stuff that we've seen that's feeding into it. It's the it's Nate sitting there looking at Twitter. It's Nate trying to win over the approval of his father. It's Nate being able to go to restaurants and be recognized. It's Rupert whispering in his ear, probably telling him, hey, there's coaching jobs out there waiting for you. Uh, so all I think all these things that we have seen more so than the things that we haven't seen are just feeding into Nate wanting the spotlight and wanting more attention. And he got that brief moment in the spotlight as, you know, the wonder kid. And he wants, he wants that. And he, he clearly suffers from major self-esteem issues. I mean, the way that when he tried to kiss Keely and then like spit at his own face in the mirror, like he, he kind of hates himself. Well, I want to talk about that scene, but I I don't want to cut off your thought train. Uh, no, please do jump in. I think that that spit scene was really fascinating because that originated as a way for him to gain confidence. Uh, Rebecca, it started because she was would privately bolster her size up to feel large and approach situations. Um, Nate failed to get a table, went into the bathroom and said, I'm fucking Nate and spit on himself in the mirror is just sort of like, uh, I don't give a fuck is how I read that like spitting mm-hmm. thing. Um, as a way of gaining confidence. But what I thought was a really interesting thing in this episode was the order of operations with which he did that. So he did not use that tactic as a way of having confidence to do something. He messed up and he kissed Keely and he felt embarrassed about it. And the way that he dealt with that was then by going in there and doing that same propping up behavior of spitting is like, I'm fucking Nate. And what that said to me was a really kind of, a damaging way of thinking about things because he was no longer using this technique as a way of helping him have the confidence to just be a person. He was kind of absolving himself from the guilt and the shame of the action that had just happened. Interesting. It, yeah, it I happened. It, I took it as him being disgusted with himself. Yeah, that, and I like that read. That didn't occur to me. Um, yeah, I, I viewed it as, once again, him trying to kind of... Yeah. Uh, yeah overcome his shame by almost not saying i deserved this but like you know like um you know when i have a socially anxious moment with somebody the next day i'm just like you're okay you're okay you do good things in the world it's all right but it you know that's i I think a less egotistical thing than like spitting on the mirror and kind of um justifying the actions or something which was how i read it but 
I like your, I like, I like that. I completely forgot about the, you know, the kind of the hyping himself up in the mirror that we saw earlier this season. So I think that's a really, it's really good to draw a perspective on that. And I think it might be both. I think it might be, yeah. you know, or even just like playing it all in reverse, right? He did it to hype himself up, but now that it's on the backside, it's kind of like he's retracting all of that, that confidence there. Um, but he's also then lashing out. Like I imagine that he left this, situation just kind of like this was the nail in the coffin of like i need to i need to make a change i need to do something different Mm -hmm. um so he's had all of these you know he's upset about sharing the spotlight and uh coach beard dropped the wonderful you know we we used to believe the trees competed for light but then we more research found that a forest is a socialist community and trees work in harmony to share the sunlight you know that was really great but he just wasn't ready to to hear any of that he feels like I feel like he's super insecure around um, Roy in general, kind of coming in and taking some of the coaching mm-hmm. spotlight away from him. So I almost feel like that him trying to kiss Keeley was him trying to be up on like Roy's level of where Roy seems to be without really thinking or giving you know two shits about anything. And then you know all the stuff with like the suit and the infantilizing yeah. coming back. You said last week like that that infantilizing remark was going to kind of come back. Um, and I think it did come back. It did come back full circle. You know, the very beginning, you see the cold open, he's wearing the suit. All the rest of the coaches are in their just normal coaching attire when, um, you know, when they winning that game in the beginning and then the suit is dry cleaned and will brings it in and is like, Oh, I've got your, I've got the suit that Ted bought you back from dry cleaning. And he's like, it's my suit. The ownership is passed on. It's mine now. It's not Ted. So there's all these little things that are feeding into him wanting to get out of this spotlight or get out of this idea that um, he's less than everybody else around him. You know, he's, he can't own a suit because Ted gave it to him and Ted is the boss. So he gets to take credit for everything else. And, you know, Roy can just walk around not giving a shit and have everything and everyone he wants. So he's trying to do that. And then he strikes out, you know, pretty horribly. And uh, I think that, uh, I'm really interested to see what comes out of it next week, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I would be surprised if we see him a whole lot next week's episode, almost like he's kind of just gone from the locker room, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, you know, kind of oftentimes my prediction things are me like hoping it's not going to be the thing that I don't want it to be, you know, like I don't want beard to die, but part of me, then I worry that that's going to happen. Enough bad things have happened to both of us in our life, or we probably have some learned self helplessness about like, Oh, well only bad things or only this story is only going to go in the way that I don't want it to. But I would love for that to be a thing that is resolved by the end of this season, rather than have it carry into the third season and have it be an angsty thing. But again, that's because I like this show to be generally, kind of not wallowing in things but i also don't think that they would do it as a wallowing thing but like i've always appreciated the the pace with which this story moves through dramatic elements or problematic elements like that yeah i I can't help but feel like they've been moving towards like taking nate away they've been moving towards taking sam away from us um you know they've been moving towards taking all of these people away and they they've built a pretty close-knit unit of players between this season and last season and they already did that last season by taking taking yeah. Jamie away and even kind of bringing Roy away and then rope to them back in. So I I do kind of get hung up on worrying about what next season is going to be, like you're saying, where, oh, are they just going to push Sam away? Are they going to push Nate away? 
and then in the first few episodes find a way to rope them right back in and, and bring them back is that territory that they've already explored. So do I want to hope that they wrap everything up or do I want to hope that it's going to um, have longer term consequences that's going to turn into something else? Is Nate, and my thinking of that is I get stuck thinking, is Nate going to leave and never come back? Like he's now going to be an adversary on the other team, uh, a coach on another team throughout the entirety of the season. And they have interactions that, you know, by the end of the season, Ted and Nate have a mutual respect for each other. They figured things out. Is Nate going to fail and come back? That just feels like, you know, previously explored territory. But what I've found is that, and what I come back to with those sort of predictive things is like, this show knows better than I do. You know, yeah. the fact that we're recording a podcast about it is speaking to the respect we have for it and how much we get out of it and how well done it is. So I, you know, I can be like, even if it does go that way, it will be much better than I could possibly expect. The show knows better than us. So, so on, on that note of kind of, um, you know, the foreshadowing or projecting out into the future, I want to talk about Sam and um, our billionaire friend, Edwin Akufo. What are your, what are your thoughts on this guy coming in? Do you think he is, do you think he's genuine? Do you think he's full of crap? Um, we see him come in, flies in on the helicopter, uh, talks about how he doesn't want to be a billionaire, supposedly bought out the museum and the restaurant to fill it with actors. Uh, everything is very staged and pre-planned, but he's very charming. He seems very genuine. Um, what do you think of this guy and what he's trying to do? I do in my notes, I wrote that he really does seem like a wonderful man. Um, that being said, he does fall into a lot of trappings for things that are off-putting to me, like landing a helicopter in the middle of the football pitch after a whole bunch of cars pull in as well is like, I don't know. Is that necessary? He, like he doesn't want to make a scene, but he clearly made a scene. He's, oh, I thought practice would be over. Yeah. But he's so well-informed and has everything else all staged. You and know the, that that has to be a lie. The idea of, I don't want to shake your hand. Um, I, you know, that, I could probably meet more in the middle of that because he does shake Sam's hand. So there's a camaraderie there. So maybe there's some like racial stuff. I can't speak to that as someone in his position. So, you know, but on the offhand, the Ted Lasso in me was a little bit like, Oh, we can't, you don't want to be handshaking, but you know, that's a, maybe a cultural thing. And so who knows, but yeah, there are some instances of, I don't want to be a billionaire yet. I'm going to buy this thing. I'm going to buy this thing. Like, uh, but I do like the way he talked about, I want to build a better thing and make things better um, is good. I can't get over how much I want, like love the scene of just like, how cool you both just met someone really awesome. And he's like, who was that? He's like, Oh, that's Banksy. It's Banksy. Like, and I love the idea of just this old guy who's clumsy, <laughs> yeah. clumsy kind of down on his luck, old white guy. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was, that was awesome too. Um, didn't Ted Lasso say that? Didn't Ted say that in sometime in the first or the second season where he says, Congratulations, you both just met an awesome person. Yeah. I'm almost certain Ted said that introducing two people. Yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm with you. So I thought that was kind of a, a funny, you know, callback um, or reflection of, of who this guy is. And it made me want to believe that he was a genuine person. But, you know, you remember years ago when, you know, a little bit after Elon Musk became, you know, one of the richest men there was a point where like there was a book written about Elon Musk after he had sold 
his shares in PayPal and he you know was founding SpaceX and Tesla and he he was kind of revered yeah like you know he wants to save the world he wants to make the world a better place and everyone had this tremendous respect it's like this is what a billionaire should be versus looking at other billionaires and kind of held Elon Musk up on a pedestal of how how great he was and he genuinely wants to make the world a better place he wants to make Hum, uh, human, the human species, a multi-planet species, and um, is doing all of these things that everyone always wished billionaires would do with their time and money. And now a few years have passed, and we all have very, very different perspectives of of Elon Musk. That's that's the vibes that that I got. I think Sarah got similar vibes. It's like, you know, they say all of these things, but I think in time we might see their true natures revealed on, um, you know, maybe the same way that we thought, like when we first meet Ted Lasso, like no one could be this genuine. What's the catch with Ted. We find out it's a kind of a broken man who needs therapy. Um, maybe that's the same thing we will find out about Edwin, but maybe he'll also turn out to just be, uh, you know, an evil out of touch billionaire, just like everybody else who claims to want to save the world, but is actually really doing a lot of this stuff, for themselves and is just having games along the way. The fact that he wants he wants to make this soccer team the greatest soccer team, on the one hand, it's like he wants to do something for the continent of Africa and, and bring people back home to play in Africa as opposed to playing, you know, in all these colonist, uh, you know, white colonist countries and everything else. But at the same time, it seems like he's doing it for himself. Yeah, there's some ego involved for sure. Yeah, I, I, I think that Elon Musk comparison is really apt because, yeah, it comes down to this like yeah and you're totally right actually i've never talked to anybody else about that but like you know listening to people talk about hating elon musk i was like didn't people really like him several years ago like what what happened and i don't follow it enough i but i'm also just down to support the idea that like if you're a billionaire you're doing things and marginalizing people and are shitty enough that like you know the the nature of it Means your disconnect you is going to grow enough to the point where you're just no matter how much good you might want to do as a billionaire the fact that you're a billionaire you know and you're not doing more is is enough to say on itself i think the idea of him being a genuinely good person makes the decision for sam a more interesting and challenging decision um because it's like i am choosing between two good options whereas if we find out that akufo is not a good person or has these things that aren't you know benefiting it would be easier for him to be like no i'm going back to rebecca or i'm going to stay here i kind of like the challenge of him needing to choose between two good options rather than choosing between one that has shown itself to be not a good option and one that is still a good option so i i, I like to hope that it's going to be that type of decision i i was really reflecting on sam's growth as a character and as an individual going back to season one and I'm excited when we do go back to look to, to just get a, another good look at who Sam is in season one, because he's, you know, really struggling on the team, if I recall. And mm-hmm. Jamie is just, you know, shitting on him all the time. And um, he lacks confidence and all these other things. And he's just kind of the quiet, quiet guy in the background. And so how much he's blossomed in the second season um, has been awesome. And it's really just encapsulated well in that in the cold open. And that was kind of bringing me back to all the feel good moments of season one in the opening, just they're winning their one game away from promotion. And Sam had a hat trick and the commentators are just throwing all this praise. And 
you know, Sam's getting the game ball and uh, just so, so happy with everything that's going on. And that was all, that's all feel good stuff. And then of course, now then you get the undercurrents of season two come in where it's not just, Hey, I'm feeling good. And look at all the success we're having together as a team. I want to remind you that there's other things going on in the background and maybe not everybody can have their cake and eat it too. Cause Sam is, despite all the success he's having and all this happiness that he's having, um, he, you know, gets into the car to read the Rebecca uh, messages from Rebecca, where she's just saying, you know, Hey, great job. Great game. And then immediately says, have a good night to kind of cut off any chance of him sending any messages back mm-hmm. or trying to spark up a longer conversation. And we see little messages of him before saying, you know, I miss you. I'm thinking of you, no pressure and her not responding to that at all. And so, so we've, We've seen that many times this season and last season with like Ted, right? The team's having all this success, but everything happening in the background is not what he wants it to be. So he's still struggling and Sam's going through a bit of the same thing. And I'm wondering how that's going to play into his decision, whether or not to leave with Rebecca. I think that's a really great point. And I want to highlight a single moment of this episode between Rebecca and Sam, which is when she shows up at his house. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I just thought was really interesting is um, she said something to the effect of like, uh, it's not, you know, my business to say, she says, I can't tell you about, you know, what our relationship is, but I don't want you to go dot, dot, dot. I should go dot, dot, dot. And she leaves. So it's this what I thought was interesting about that is she verbalized almost exactly what he was internalizing, which is, I don't want you to go right now. Like in his text message, he's like, I would love to see you tonight. And she closes that door. Um, He's standing there and she says, but I don't want you to go. I should go. And it's like, it, it kind of acknowledges this difference of like her, not even necessarily fully realizing where he's at at this moment as well. Like they're both experiencing the same thing of like, I'd like to be with you. I don't want you to go, whether we're talking about you leaving the country or you just leaving my house tonight, but she did go. I just think there's an interesting thing there. You know, this mirror of they're both experiencing the same thing. She verbalized it and then did the thing that might be what would hurt him, which is to be leaving that night, which maybe foreshadows the idea that he will go because they were both experiencing the same thing and they both allowed themselves to leave rather than uh, do exactly what the other person would have wanted them to do. Just an interesting bit of writing and kind of mirrored perspective. Yeah. I mean, I really, I like how everything is kind of played out with their relationship and not knowing and kind of not having closure. And I think I kind of do think that he will ultimately go mm-hmm. and it will still leave, leave open and there won't necessarily be closure and there not always is closure in, in life or in relationships or things like that. I think it, I think it might, might leave on that, on that note. And we know that he has only, he has 72 hours. Yeah. Take uh, as all long the as time you need. You need. Yeah. <laughs> you have 72 hours, um, which was kind of a, like a, like a, like a bond villain type of a mm-hmm. proclamation of you have 72 hours to pay my ransom, um, which brings back again, this the question of whether or not this billionaire can be trusted. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Roy and Keeley. Yeah. You know, so I thought it was really interesting uh, well, first, a great line today from Roy to the teacher when he just says that the coach that would chase him around like Mad Max, just uh, the best teachers are the toughest ones. Really like that line. But mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think it's, you know, to summarize this idea, Roy wasn't phased by the admission of the Nate kiss at all. Um, but he was by the Jamie revelation. 
And I'm, so I'm curious to you, why do you think that that phased him? Whereas the neat thing didn't phase him. I guess I would have thought that he doesn't view Nate as uh, a threat Mm -hmm. to the relationship, but perhaps he does view Jamie as a threat to the relationship. Um, So that probably bothered him a lot more. And the, the, Nate trying to kiss her at me and it just happened the same day. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, she's telling him immediately, but the fact that Jamie said this to her days, weeks, probably weeks, weeks ago and sat on it and didn't say anything probably is a lot heavier to think. Why didn't she, why did she wait so long to tell me? That's a great point. Why didn't she say this right away? So it's already, he's already potentially threatened by Jamie, but why didn't she say anything? Um, but I also think that it was a little bit of the burden of what he had just told Keely too, of like, what does it mean that this, that Phoebe's teacher asked me if I was married and I said no, and then didn't say anything else. What does that mean about my, mm-hmm. my thoughts? And when we go back to you know, episode seven, where I talked about the kind of unnecessary storyline of like Roy and Keely struggling to find, um, you know, some, uh balance balance between yeah their constant presence and roy always being there and kind of being annoyed that that was a storyline they introduced to i suppose that's lessened a bit now because they've continued planting these little seeds of like what is roy and where is roy and keely's relationship going and i i think that if you tried to just look at it as a surface level thing as a sitcom thing one of two things is the outcome to this scenario, which is they're going to break up or Roy is going to propose like that's any watching any show. Those are the two things that you think is one of those things is going to happen. And it might still be, still be the case. But I think when you look at it a lot deeper, I mean, they just, they have they're despite them not revealing this or Keely not revealing this right away. Like they have really healthy conversations. They have a really good ability to, you know, share their innermost thoughts that might be hard for a lot of people to be able to articulate. Uh, I think they work really well. Like they had right before that, they had a really great moment where Keely was feeling very, very self-conscious about um, revealing herself to the world. And he's like, well, they've, they've seen you jump out naked, uh, topless, eating a hamburger out of an airplane. Why are you feeling self-conscious? She's like, they're going to see the real me. And he's like, they're going to, the real you is fucking amazing. They're going to just absolutely be in love with you. Uh, and they have a wonderful moment that gives her the confidence to go into the shoot. And you can see all the confidence that she's carrying until they have this very intimate moment where they're sitting there just looking in each other's eyes. And I think they can feel that. I think they can feel that intimacy where there's like, we, ha- we have to get these things out on the table um, and have a discussion. What it's going to mean for their relationship to go forward is, I think a big question and is yet to be seen. Um, I don't, I don't want to see them break up. I want to see them continue to build on the strength right. that they've been able to build through all this communication, but it's certainly going to be a big conversation for them um, that I think they'll have. Yeah. I think they're so perfect to each other. And yeah, the scene, you know, with Roy <laughs> being able to console her, like the amount of support that they're able to pro- provide for each other is, is really, really beautiful. That's, that's where I start doing predictive things mostly is out of self-preservation. I'm just like, I want those two to stay together, but like, does this mean they're going to break up or like, man, Roy did get along with that teacher really well. And she seems really wonderful too, frankly. 
Um, we haven't talked about Phoebe drawing perfectly breasts <laughs> all over those pages. I love that. Um, just like that notch into her character, which who also her, makes who is her who is her model? Where is she? Where yeah, is she? that's what I was thinking too. I love that the, she's like, I think I, I I lost some of them, and the children are using them yeah. as currency. <laughs> so good. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it it's an interesting interesting thing to see what's going to happen with the two of them. I really hope that they stay together, and I'm optimistic that they will. But the fact that they're they have provided us with possible outs for both of them to have partners that could benefit them in certain ways, um, you know, is obviously the writers giving us cause for concern, which well done. You got me wrapped around your finger. So, so on that note at the school as well, the, 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 the teacher that is wearing all of the treats. Oh God, I love on her, okay. I was trying. I was trying to phrase this the best way I possibly can. Right? No woman is ever asking for any man to grope her under like any <laughs> circumstance at all. It's never okay. But is she kind of asking for like? Oh what, wow! I didn't put, think about that. Good question. Who, who who puts candy and treats all over her sweater? She's like, you want a lollipop? Like trying to get Roy to like touch her. Like there's no way for another human being to grab those treats off of her sweater without being in a position of being canceled. I can't remember if she gesticulates towards it with her hand. Like, is she going to pull a sucker out for him? She was, for it was him? on her arm, which, okay. you know, I guess is a better placement for it than anywhere else. What but I will yeah, say. She was like reaching for it on her arm. Like, you want a sucker? And he's like, fuck no. Get yeah. me away. I will say, yeah, you're right. The idea of candy being there is quite the question mark, but both of my parents worked in the school districts growing up and I've seen my mom my entire life wear some ridiculous fucking clothing because kids love it. Just like giant colorful necklaces. Cause she's working in a preschool section. Um, I just processed it that way of like, yeah, this is just a lady who has some outlandish, ridiculous clothing that I bet kids love, but just don't fit in, in an adult world. And which is why I loved when the teacher is just like, get a grip or whatever's like okay, yeah grow the, grow, fuck up. grow the fuck up so good like I, <laughs> I love that that teacher i really adore her um you know they've done a great job of making us like her a lot even though she poses a romantic threat to our sort of relationship core absolutely have they can introduce her as just a as a nice kind of affable human being that's uh, another person in roy's life that uh, has a close relationship with uh, somebody that roy cares deeply for so uh, if I, he I've got a quote that happened early on in the episode that I think echoed through a lot of the episode, which is right early on, um, Rebecca and Keely are talking and Keely does the thing where she's like, I'm freaking out. And then Rebecca kind of like echoes that screaming sound. They go back and forth with that. But, yeah. Um, but Rebecca's consolation to Keely is that's just fear getting in the way of what you deserve. And I think that metaphor goes through everything, specifically Rebecca's barriers with sam like it's fear getting in the way of what she believes she deserves i think it's so often true that we know exactly what we need to hear but we don't realize that we need to be telling it to ourselves but it seeps out in our conversations with other people but i also think there's something to be said for that's what's going on with nate you know like he fears that he's overshadowed he fears he's not getting what he deserves and, and in doing so, it's preventing him from having a healthy, objective thing. Uh, yeah, I think so much of what happens uh, internally with these folks is uh, fear getting in the way of what we think that we deserve. So 
I liked hearing Rebecca say that early on and feeling like, oh, lady, that's what you need to hear also. Do you think it means anything that um, Rebecca's money is all perfectly, you know, crisp and all of Keely's money is just like crumpled up in balls? As she it all spins the same. Spins the same. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't notice that until my second time through, actually. I mean, yeah, I guess we're sort of in this this kind of summative area of the cast now. We're kind of talking about some of our favorite lines of dialogue and things that have come up. Um, and I probably should have tagged this in. We were talking about Ted and Sharon early on. But I think that a really great line of dialogue there that is something to pull out and just think about in our everyday lives is when, when Ted's like, you know, I thought we had a breakthrough. And she's like, we did. Um, and she said, thanks to you, I learned that expressing my vulnerabilities helps my patients express theirs. And I think that in everyday life, there's a lot of uh, importance for that type of thing. Um, I, I do it almost cripplingly. I was talking to our friend Nathan Butcher this week and I was, you know, in kind of talking about relationship stuff, identifying like, oh yeah, I can get really annoyed at like, you know, things I perceive as Sam's shortcomings, but I'm way more aware of, you know, like, but I'm like, she can be, she can suck sometimes, but I suck all the time. You know, like, I think it is, we can easily take it too far, but I do think that it's really important to think about making sure everyone's on the same footing when you're having a conversation with them. Uh, it's easy to, in conversation to, if you're talking to someone or giving them advice or even giving them your thoughts, it's easy for someone to feel like you're on a pedestal and below them. If you're being able to offer advice or information that maybe they haven't talked about. And I think it's just really important to always be willing to express our own vulnerabilities, especially when we're talking to somebody about their own vulnerabilities. So I really like Sharon's inclusion of that. Um, as a valuable lesson she learned from Ted. I, I like that exact same note, but when Ted says, you know, we had a breakthrough and she says, you did have a breakthrough. And he said, no, we had a breakthrough. Yeah. And I really like that as a, just a cap off moment of where their relationship has evolved to, because they both, when they both met each other at the beginning of the season, they were pretty standoffish you know, with each other. I mean, Ted was completely against the idea of bringing in a therapist uh, in general and then even when she did come in, he was just kind of jokey and a bit dismissive of the of the benefits of therapy. And she was very you know standoffish of him and wasn't particularly interested in his antics. So they clearly did have a breakthrough. And the fact that they were able to go to the bar and be laughing and joking and playing pinball uh, together and her to be just more of a human being with him and he's being able to be more of a human being with her was great. And I thought that perfectly encapsulated where their relationship has come just by highlighting, no, we had a breakthrough. Mm -hmm. um, I also really loved just moments we love, just the in sync dancing. Yeah. Um, uh, when Ted is explaining to them that they're on, like, that what finally clicks for them is that you're on marionettes. That's why the album is called No Strings Attached. <laughs> and like, Everybody on the team's like head exploded, realizing for the first time ever, oh, no strings attached. I get it. <laughs> um, and he had the line, it ain't the execution that's the gift, it's the effort. Um, I like that just anytime in general thinking about yeah. you know, gifts and things like that that you're giving someone. Uh, and then when they finally get the dance and he's like, that was it. Yeah. Or just celebrates like. They had just won the uh, you know championship game or something. The fantastic. way that Will is holding up the boon box and like, like dancing. Yeah, like it's a very <laughs> sensual dance he's doing there. 
Um, that was all really great. And then just a little thing I noticed at the very end when we do get that text message from Trent Crim, Trent Crim, the independent, by the way, if you go to Trent Crim, the independent's Twitter profile, it is labeled Trent Crim, comma, the independent <laughs> on there as well. Um, Ted's apartment was clean. Yep. The little yep. spotlight of like, hey, well, the last time we saw him, his apartment was a wreck. It was a mess. Um, he seems to be in a healthier place. And he was also having a great conversation with his son mm-hmm. uh, on the laptop uh, earlier in the episode, too. And I don't know if you caught it, um, but Ted's son is talking just like yeah. Him. yeah. He was like, good thinking, eh, Blinken? Yep. Uh, I was like, oh, God, like the cycle, the cycle continues down the stream from Ted's father to Ted down to his son. Parenting. Yeah, I guess to my two final thoughts here, um, I, I guess I'll address this one from the end and then kind of a, a summative idea that I thought was really good in here. But I wanted to ask you, you know, Ted's really shocked at the end of that episode. He's probably dealing with the sense of betrayal for what's just happened with Nate. But also the fact that he is like the public is going to know about this panic attack. And I, I guess I'm curious, really, though, how difficult does it need to be uh, for him to get ahead of that story and admit that he had a panic attack? Like, is it uh, that he would, he would have to admit that he had lied? Is that what's really difficult? That's probably a, a, some of it. Or is he experiencing shame for having a panic attack? Um, and it se- seems to me like owning that would be a kind of empowering statement about his level of comfort about the journey that he's been on through therapy um you know the first time i finished the episode i was just sort of like well ted it shouldn't be that hard for you to just be like yeah i had a panic attack but also i'm in a different spot with sort of what i consider stigmas with mental health to be in our country and the world yeah i mean mental health in sports has come a long way in the last couple of years you see a lot more athletes talking about mental health and I've been thinking a lot about like, what is season one compared to season two in, in general? And season one made us feel really good in a time we really needed it. It's about optimism and positivity. Um, but season two has kind of taken us a little bit deeper, like beyond a, like a fleeting superficial optimism. Not that I think that super one, that season one was completely superficial optimism, but there's there was clearly a lot going on under the surface that mm-hmm. was even pre-planned in season one. I still think season one is about that. It's it's a self-contained, just incredibly positive, uh, optimistic experience that challenges totally us to be better people and to approach situations in life and interactions with other people differently. Season two is pushing us deeper into this mental health. So to me, the it's exactly what you said, like the, the responsible and the natural step to this final episode is for Ted to own it, is for Ted to just be like, I had a panic attack and I... I want to talk to you about mental health, whatever capacity that might be. He's clearly going to get questioned, you know, um, about it. But I think he's going to I think he's going to stand up to it. I think he's going to own it. I don't think it's going to wreck him. I think that even though he still needs lots more therapy, I think he's in a much healthier place. And he's always been a pretty open book in general with um, with the media. So I think it's all going to just come together really well in this final episode for him to just own it and. Um, you know, take it as a call to action for others, others to seek it. When we look at the entire team, a bunch of players on the team got therapeutic help, but none of the other coaching staff, none of the, you know, kind of leadership team level got therapy. And, you know, I I don't think we will explore that, but I think it should be, I think they they should, others should seek it. Um, Yeah. And I, 
you know, I hope that we'll see a similar type of thing with Ted and Nate, as we saw with Ted and Rebecca at the end of the first season, which is just Ted forgiving Nate. Because while I do think like Nate, you're being a real bastard. Um, I think it's really human and it makes a lot of sense and ego and insecurity is something that I, I certainly battle with. I have the best, I think I've been blessed with the best business partner that a person could really ever have, but being 12 years younger than him, like it's very easy to consistently kind of fall into some of those trappings that Nate does. So, um, you know, I, I, it's easy to be frustrated with Nate, but also have some compassion for him. And I think it's very in line with Ted to, to be able to identify that and be able to be compassionate with him. I hope. I was very much predicting that Ted would give Nate um, the kind of kiss of death and say, I know it was you, Nate, and I'm very disappointed. Mm. Or no, he says, no, I'm sorry. I know it was you, Nate, and you broke my heart. Yeah. Uh, Just like Fredo. Um, But we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. So then before we check in with the Lasso's Twitter account, uh, there's just a bit of, you know, my favorite quote, I think, from this episode um, was when Ted is talking to Rebecca uh, and Rebecca just sort of like unloads about the Sam stuff and the revelation there. I think that was an amazing lesson in listening. He wasn't guiding her thought at all. He was just legitimizing and valuing every thought she had, whether it was counter to what she was saying or not. Like, I couldn't agree more. Nope, I was wrong. I can't agree. Like all of that. But his bit of advice at the end where he says, just listen to your gut. And on your way down your gut, check in with your heart. Between those two, they should tell you what's what. I really liked that. And I also liked the uh, the admission, um, the lack of inclusion for the importance of like the brain and all of that. Because for me, that's where I get tangled up and overthinking and overanalyzing and bouncing ideas off one another and counter, you know, proving myself. But just like, listen to your gut and on your way down, check in with your heart. And I don't know that much needs to be more important or said about that. So it's just a great lesson in listening um, and the way that you can be a sounding board for somebody without telling them what to do. That's fantastic. I, uh, so I have a Ted Lasso Twitter, but I also wanted to close this out with my favorite part of the episode. Um, You know, Ted Lasso checking in with Ted Lasso Twitter. When it comes to small talk, I often ask myself, what would Dolly Parton do? Start with nine to five and end with God only knows. That was in response to somebody tweeting about being uh, at the airport and being frustrated that their Southwest ticket is in group C. And rather than let themselves be frustrated, they thought thought to themselves, what would Ted Lasso do? And so this person struck up a conversation with, um, you know, a mom who was on their way to celebrate their mother's 80th birthday. Uh, So that was great. But uh, my quote of the episode that I will leave us out with, we, you know, after we met um, Edwin, gosh, I'm still struggling to remember his name every time I say Edwin Akufo. Edwin Akufo. um, And we see the interactions. Ted says Hakuna Matata. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that racist? Oh, well, they're cartoons. So I'll I'll let you go. And then later when they're talking about Sam and, Ted says, I, I sure wish we could just clone Sam. I wonder what the Scottish are up to. They sure have been silent. And to me, this is maybe the quote of the series, uh, Jeffrey. A silent white man is still a white man. Mm, yeah. You know, I actually, that line of dialogue, I didn't pick up on either of my two times through it. I must have misinterpreted that as a, d- a different line, but that's... <laughs> He says, uh, all the Scottish people, uh, they sure have been quiet. And he says, well, you know, my father used to say, a silent white man is still a white man. Gosh. 
a lot to un- unpack from that and mine there. God, this show is so good, Will. I love talking to you. Thanks for hanging out. I love talking to you too, Jeff. We'll see you next week. See you next week.